in Bruce Marshall's 1945 novel entitled The World, The Flesh, and Father Smith tells a story that follows Father Smith, who's a Catholic priest in a small industrial town. And Father Smith seeks to share the grace of God, that's his purpose in the book, to the community that he lives in, who in this book are constantly being lured by the wiles of the devil, as you can guess, the world and the flesh, and Father Smith is the title. Now, in one scene in particular, there's an interaction between Father Smith, who's the protagonist, and a young woman on her front stoop named Dana Agdala. Now, in the book, Dana is the author of uh, a best-selling book, so we've got a book within a book, best-selling book called Naked and Unashamed. And the two begin to have this dialogue where they spar over doctrine, you know, church doctrine versus modern science, and eventually they move on to the topic of sexuality. And in the midst of their debate, Miss Agdala suggests that Father Smith proves the point that she's always believed about Christians. And she said, I quote, that religion is only a substitute for sex. Father Smith counters with a profound quote. Uh, Actually, I didn't know about this book. I had heard this quote attributed to G.K. Chesterton, and when I did my research, because I like to try to do some research because there's stuff flying off the shelves all the time in sermons, and it turns out G.K. Chesterton did not say this quote. It was falsely attributed to him. It's actually from this book. But he, he counters Miss Agdala by saying this. He says, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. This morning, we are taking a look at the vice of lust. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you will notice that there is a lot in common with lust's cousin, the vice of gluttony, because both are about pleasure-seeking. Both involve using some type of physical pleasure as a replacement for spiritual satisfaction. Just like Father Smith's comments, the person who goes to the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The illicit pursuit of sex is a conduit to attempt to reach God. In many ways, gluttony shows us how a disordered view of food can, you know, disregard the pursuit of nourishment for our body. So too lust as a disordered view of sex, which I, I would argue can strip us of our humanness. So I want to start off by trying to help us think through the place of sex in our society. Is it something that is sacred Is it something that is sinful? Because I feel like we get mixed messages all the time. What is its purpose? Is it for procreation? Is it for pleasure? Is it for intimacy? Now, if you look at the broader culture around us, the message that we are bombarded with is that sex is something that is pursued for the sake of pleasure. You know, maybe you get some intimacy sprinkled in there. But I would take it a step further and say that many argue that, you know, what they say, quote-unquote, puritanical religion, I think of the Puritans, those who came over by the Mayflower with all their rules, you know, that all these prudish religious folk is the enemy when it comes to sex. That the church has too much infused guilt into the conversation in an effort to squelch natural desire and as a means to emotionally control people. 
Now, as someone who's inside the church, and I, I hope that's not too much of a straw argument, and it's a little bit of a stereotype, but for those inside the church, that doesn't always feel like a fair picture of how the church views sex. Now, granted, the church has not always had a stellar track record about the issue, but the church has taken the subject of sexuality seriously for centuries because the Bible takes it seriously. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 20. It's interesting. You know, I, I talked about the uh, gluttony being a, a kind of a cousin uh, of lust. And right before what I'm going to read, Paul's talking about food, how the food's not made for the body, but body for food. Kind of seems eerily familiar to what we saw two weeks ago. But he says this in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We kind of understand that a little bit later with, you know, the the church being the body of Christ with Jesus as the head. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's probably the opposite, the Greek, that's like, heaven forbid. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul continues, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Again, that's 1 Corinthians six thirteen to 20. Now, in this passage, we begin to see why this has been such an area of focus in the church throughout history. Paul says that in verse 18, that all other sins are committed outside of the body, but sexual immorality does something internal. I'm going to say to our souls. I know he says body, but kind of that that root word of soul, the Hebrew understanding is kind of our whole person. Not just our physical body, but our emotions, all of that, that oneness of us. So it does something to our souls. It shows us that there is this link between the activity of sex and the care of our souls. Again, I'm using souls intentionally because we often use body purely in that kind of carnal understanding, physical understanding. It does something beyond just affecting our physical beings. I shared the quote two weeks ago that gluttony is raiding the refrigerator in an effort to stave off spiritual malnutrition. Lust works the same way in our culture. Right? We see so much sexual passion, but so little desire for God. We have used something lesser to try to feel the void when we feel lack, when we feel the need for something greater. Dallas Willard, I find myself going to him a lot of late. He said this, and I quote, Intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul, and we cannot escape it. He says this has always been true, and it remains true today. We now keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out. 
and he's, he expresses this using something lesser to try to fill something greater. Now, as the church, we need to begin this conversation with an acknowledgement that sex is good, that it is not inherently sinful. Like most of the vices, lust is a disordered sexual desire. But in order for it to be disordered, that means that it had to start off as something good. It had to start off as something ordered. Right? Vices do not occur in the vacuum, but are virtues that are distorted. I appreciate in um, uh, the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Right? They, the, these demons, I, I quoted a couple weeks ago too, but these demons are kind of dialoguing. And they say, they acknowledge that they have not been able to create virtue. In all of their scientific research, the demons cannot take virtue. They can only take the good things that God has created and distort them. Change them, mar them. Put another way, one of the best definitions that I've heard of sin, it's not foolproof, but I like it. Sin is going about the right thing, but the wrong way. In Genesis 1.27, we see God create man and woman. We see him create them with sexual bodies, with physical attraction, with arousal. Right Before the fall, we even see that they were naked and they didn't feel any shame. Sex was designed by God as an incredibly intimate act. Right? In the very next chapter of Genesis, man and woman are described as leaving and cleaving. Right? That they are to leave their place of upbringing, leave the authority of their parents and cleave, join together with one another. An act that Scripture describes as becoming one flesh, which we see quoted in this, that passage in 1 Corinthians that I just read. Right? One flesh, fully knowing the physical and emotional spaces of one another. An act that is meant to bring union together. Sex is affirmed in Scripture. Read the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament wisdom literature. It unblushingly affirms and celebrates the sexual love between man and a woman. I mean, in the Jewish tradition, the book was considered steamy enough that there was an age requirement. It was, you know, before we had PG-13, right? There was a certain point that, that a boy had to get before he was allowed to read the book of the Bible, of the Torah, I guess it would have been, or the Tanakh. Anyway, I digress. Take the Sermon on the Mount. One of the classic examples Jesus gives, right? He escalates these Ten Commandments. You've heard it said this. And he talks about adultery, right? Just not having an affair is not enough. Jesus says that even looking at a woman, or I'm, I'm going to add man as well, lustfully, is worthy of the fires of hell, right? I mean, that's when he says some pretty seemingly barbaric things about plucking out eyes and chopping off hands. Now, it's, this is an interesting point because the word that he, tra- he is translated lust is not even always a bad word. Right? The Greek word that Jesus used is, that's translated lust is epithemio. I don't expect you to remember that. But loosely, translated means the cravings of the heart. So you can understand why we get lust out of that. But interestingly enough, it is the same root word that Jesus uses in his, uh, the Last Supper, right? his meal with his disciples, where he says that he eagerly desired... That's the word, epithemeo. 
he eagerly desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. Desire is not the problem. Our goal is not to get rid of desire, but to channel it in ways that are appropriate. One of the examples that I've heard that I think is a helpful analogy when thinking about the constraints of something like sex, it doesn't have to just be that. It's about fire. Fire is good. It can bring heat. It can cook food. It can warm your house. But you don't want a fire in the middle of your living room floor. Right? A fire there is tragic. Fire is good, but you want it limited to your fireplace or, I don't know, your furnace to, to modernize it a little bit. You want the boundaries to maintain and the boundaries that are established for it so that it can provide the good for you, but to also keep you from burning your house down. So too, sex is good, but it needs to be applied in the right channels. Frederick Buchner put it this way. He said, contrary to Mrs. Grundy, I don't know who Mrs. Grundy is, maybe that's a figure from history, but contrary to Mrs. Grundy, sex is not a sin. Contrary to Hugh Hefner, it is not salvation either. Then he says this, like nitroglycerin, it can be used either to blow up bridges or heal hearts. I don't know if you knew that. Nitroglycerin is one of those things that can be used to, uh, when you have a, uh, not an aneurysm, it begins with an A though, like nitroglycerin in, in I don't know. Anyway, like nitroglycerin, it has functions that can bring healing, but can also bring destruction. Now, if you've been following along, you begin to understand this dichotomy, right? That if sex is good, then lust is a disordered sexual desire. It's taking something that is good and distorting it and abusing it in a way that benefits the self. Because most of these are about the self. Most of these are, how am I fulfilling my needs? The Greek word that is often used to describe this vice at other places in Scripture is the word porneia. You can see the root. It's where we get our word pornography from. The Latin word that is used is fornicatio, which again, you can probably guess the etymology of our word fornication. Both describe activities that are taking the goodness of human sexuality and warping them. Now, there's always extreme examples of lust, but under normal circumstances, I would argue that lust is a sin of weakness, not malice. It is not something that individuals usually use to try to intentionally hurt others. Now, that doesn't mean that no one is harmed in its pursuit, but this vice has a tendency to rear its ugly head in us when we are facing times of weakness catches us when we're feeling empty or alone or afraid or hurt or defensive or frustrated, right? We use lust to remedy our loneliness or poor self-esteem. It strikes when we're dealing with some form of emptiness, something that ultimately God should feel, but just like the, the sin of gluttony, instead of going to the Lord for fulfillment, to go to the Lord for our sense of identity. We run to the pantry or we run to the internet or some other avenue meant to give us that little burst of dopamine. Lust takes sex and strips it down 
for our own personal gratification. Whereas sex was designed to be an act of mutual self-giving, lust makes it all about me. What am I getting? What can I take for my own benefit? Now, usually, especially if we're considering what Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount about lust, usually we think about lust in situations outside of marriage. But I would argue that if you are married, I think you can have lust in a negative way for your spouse. Just because God's design for sex is in marriage does not mean that all sex within marriage is pure. You can view your spouse as an object for your own gratification. Lust does not want to see the humanity of the other. It wants to treat others as an object for our own benefit. But the problem is, in the end, it makes us feel empty. It leaves us feeling more isolated often than when we started. Like any addiction, the more we partake in the vice, the more that we are conditioned, calloused to it. The more we are less satisfied by it. Right? Feeding the desire does not make it go away, quite the contrary. Every time we succumb to one of these tendencies, it is strengthened within us. It creates patterns. It creates habits. Sin begets more sin. There's a nonprofit out there called Fight the New Drug. This is their mission statement in their words. They exist to provide individuals the opportunity to make informed decisions regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. They understand the link between pornography and the similar brain chemistry that you find in drug addictions. What their research suggests is that with repeated use, there is an increase in frequency to the future, and additionally, there is a loss of novelty and effectiveness to what is viewed. Right? Like any addiction, the dopamine receptors aren't quite as effective when that happens time and time again, which results in desensitization desensitization, and an escalation in the type of behaviors that are observed and desired in pornography. Almost a millennium ago, almost a thousand years ago, Thomas Aquinas said something similar, saying that lust creates a blindness of our minds. It deadens the senses. But this goes well beyond just pornography. It can be the pursuit of an affair, objectifying people on the street, the type of music we listen to, the type of books that we read. The truth is it's not really possible for us to live in our world in this day and age without having to battle this in some form daily. But we can become so numb to its overwhelming presence in our lives that we think we don't even notice it anymore, but it's forming us. Right? Lust is the practice of substituting something less instead of something more. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis describes this truth, and he says this. This comes from his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He compares us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer 
of a holiday at the sea. He concludes, we are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. We are content playing in muddy puddles in a pothole-stricken street when God has offered us the opportunity to go on an all-expense-paid cruise. We think that we have these fierce desires that need to be fulfilled, but God says, your desires are anemic. You're settling for second-rate pleasures when something so much more in Him is being offered. Now, in my opinion, this would be reason enough to cast lust out of our lives, to, not substitute, to stop substituting second-rate pleasures for the goodness of God. But just to take it a step further, I want to disabuse us of this notion, and maybe you guys don't have this notion, but a lot of people do, that lust can create situations where no one gets hurt, or, you know, like a no harm, no foul kind of situation. The truth is lust has created a lot of suffering, both in its direct and indirect implications. When we let our desires run rampant, it's like having a fire in the middle of your living room. People are going to get burned. Marriages are left in shambles after an affair. I haven't seen it, but Hulu recently released a series called Pam and Tommy, which tracks the the sex tape scandal of, of Pamela Lee Anderson and Tommy Lee, or Pamela Anderson Lee, from the 90s. And, you know, there are a lot of people, when that happened, that was, you know, Pamela Anderson was kind of like a sex symbol of the 90s, you know, Baywatch and all those types of things. And so I think there was an element of, like, this is okay, right? She set herself up to be in this. But what I've heard, you know, reading some reviews about this series, what they do a good job of showing is how Pamela Anderson was repeatedly victimized by the leaking of this tape, much more so than the other participant in it, her husband Tommy Lee. The public's fuel for the video created a market that it was profitable for this producer to steal and share it and for her to be maltreated. Fight the New Drug has provided countless examples of how the sex industry oppresses, particularly women, in its production. That women are abused, degraded, trafficked. All because there is a demand from the general population that, is, that, that the general population creates. So lust directly is hurting people. But there are all kinds of indirect consequences of lust in our society. Our culture's repeated worship at the altar of lust has formed us as a people. Even outside of affairs, this has affected our marriages. Naomi Wolf recent, famously said that real naked women are just bad porn. And when you have kind of the, the airbrush, the edited, how, how can you possibly hold up to that? It's formed the type of language that we use. It's normalized misogyny and objectification. I know I have to confess much of myself being male. I think there are a lot of us who are men who are oblivious to this. But I'd encourage you, talk to a woman that you care for. Ask her how many times that she's been catcalled on the street. Ask her how many times that she has felt afraid or anxious walking near a group of men on the street or feels the need to be fully alert at all times if there's just one guy alone walking behind her. Lust has distorted our character and it has deformed our perceptions of reality and it has hindered not only our relationship with God but our relationship with others as well, normalizing these horrific behaviors. 
Now, I wish I could tell you that lust was just a problem out there in the world, but here in the church of Jesus Christ that we have been so transformed by the gospel that we are beyond its grasp. Not the case. The church is not immune to any of this. Elders and clergy who struggle with pornography, you have sexual abuse that is covered up in churches both Catholic and Protestant alike. Right, the hashtag MeToo movement started trending in 2017 in the wake of the sexual abuse allegations of Harvey we- against Harvey Weinstein. But soon after, the church had its own moment of reckoning with the hashtag church Two, because the church has been guilty of covering up plenty of abuse allegations, circling the wagons to protect people of influence within its walls, not caring for the vulnerable in our midst. Studies show that the rates of all of these issues in the church are similar to that in the broader culture. And frankly, I think the church has not done any favors for itself over the years. I think the church has put the focus in the wrong categories when it comes to sex because it has seemed so obsessed with sex and has used shame as a tool to try to control people. At least that's how it comes across. I remember in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a huge movement for the purity subculture in churches. Right? Young men and women wore purity rings to signify their devotion to Jesus, desire to remain celibate until marriage. All worthwhile goals, don't get me wrong. But the education on sex was woefully inadequate in those churches. It basically communicated, this was it in a nutshell, if you restrain your urges now, and you don't have sex before marriage, then when you get married, you're going to have mind-blowing sex. That's what they said, basically. Frankly, this is an example of lust in and of itself, because it's not constraining desire for the sake of self-control, but really, it's selfishness, wanting better, more, later on. But what was left in its wake was a bunch of disenchanted individuals who learned that when you're married, sex can be really difficult were really awkward. It made, it made it difficult for some to flip the switch before and after marriage, constantly being hammered that sex was bad, that it was dirty, that it was shameful, and then all of a sudden now, it's acceptable in marriage. Many felt the whiplash effect, and it harmed marriages. It harmed intimacy in those marriages. And I mean, the church has said a lot about sexual immorality, talked a lot about the act of sexual sin, but It's been eerily quiet when it comes to the sin of misogyny within its walls. We're a mess as as the bride of Christ. And we need the healing grace of Jesus to help us navigate. What do we do now? What is our path forward? How do we live so that we're not like the broader culture? That we showcase that we're a transformed people by the grace of Jesus. Now, like all the deadly sins, there is a corresponding virtue for lust, the virtue of chastity. Chastity is closely aligned with temperance, which we saw with gluttony, right? Temperance comes from this idea of tempering, taking desires, taking things that, that you know, God, good God-given desires and restraining them. But chastity is the act of channeling those dev- desires in virtuous ways, right? It's not the same thing as celibacy, which is, you know, the, the, the act of voluntary abstinence. And celibacy is, celibacy is one avenue for chastity, but they're not, they're not quite the same. As we have seen time and time again, 
with sin. We cannot manufacture change within us. We can't just try really, really hard to restrain our libido. We need deeper transformation worked by God and his Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. St. Augustine famously prayed to God when he was 17 years old. He said, grant me chastity, but not yet. And I think Augustine speaks for many of us. Because most of us that struggle with lust feel deep shame for the lust that we experience. And we want it out of our lives, but at the same time we want to hold on to it. Right? It's like, take it from me, but, but not yet. Chastity is one of those things that is a lifelong practice for us all. Whether you are old or young, whether you're married or single, female or male, the virtuous, virtues of temperance and chastity can train us to celebrate the fullness of pleasure, right? seeking the fullness of pleasure rather than seeking to dampen or forbid it. And I think that's what the, the, the broader culture gets wrong about the church's teaching. And maybe the church has gotten wrong. The goal is not to dampen or forbid the desire, but it's to channel it in the right ways. It involves a change in thinking, being deprogrammed from the way the culture views sex, and understanding that greater pursuit of God, greater pursuit that God has created us for. We need to break out of the grass is always greener mentality that comes in our consumerist culture. Right? That we need to keep our options open because there's something inevitably better out there for us. And this has been the contributing factor for countless affairs and divorces. But the da data from numerous studies show that there is greater sexual satisfaction both in quantity and quality in faithful monogamous marriages than those who live more promiscuously. Tim Keller highlights this in his book, Meaning for Marriage, and he tells the story of a journalist who had an affair. And for a time, the physical intimacy that she experienced was with, with this person she was having an affair with was passionate. Right? That, that forbidden fruit will often create some, some extra excitement. But then when the dust settled and she looked at her parents, who were at the time celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, and she looked at the model that they had set before her, and then she looked and compared it to her own broken marriage, now in shambles, that the weeks and the months of her affair didn't measure up. They weren't worth it. They didn't hold a candle to what she saw in her parents. Because the fruit, the real fruit of pleasure comes as a byproduct of the growth of love and intimacy. Right? Lust boils down to the act, the pleasure, but there's so much more than just the physical act in the formation of intimacy. In fact, the ancients, uh, th this is even, you know, pre-Christianity, this is like the ancient Greeks, because they did have a lot to say about virtue and vice that we can borrow some elements of truth from. But they said that pleasure was not something that you could pursue directly. Right? Pleasure wasn't something that you went after and attained, but it was a natural byproduct of pursuing virtuous ways of living. That is how you got pleasure, as, as kind of that by secondarily. It's interesting. But don't stop there, right? Don't, as you think about this, don't just... Oh, no, I skipped something. Excuse me. One of the avenues in order to pursue chastity is to be more discerning with what we fill our minds with. Right? Because we are. We're the byproducts of what we consume. 
even if you are free from the grip of pornography, there is highly sexualized content everywhere. Just as an example, I know that Game of Thrones is highly popular. I read the books up until this point. But I also know by reading the books, I haven't seen the series, but I also know that it is highly raunchy. Maybe you need to readjust the algorithm for what comes up on your Snapchat or Instagram reels. We try to walk as close to the cliff as possible and avoid falling off. But chastity commits to staying away from the cliff altogether. I love the way that Martin Luther said it. He said, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You cannot fully control what you are bombarded with, but you can control what you allow to reside in your heart and your mind. But this is where it doesn't stop there. Right? Don't just make this into a list of don'ts. But make sure that there are areas of health and fidelity that you're adding. Paul makes this point in Philippians 4.8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fix your eyes on what is good. I mean, even what we talked about earlier, fixing our eyes on the horizon of Jesus. Remembering that God has created you for more. But lastly, and I think most importantly, we cannot handle the vice of lust alone. Lust has the habit of bringing shame in our lives. It isolates us, and we need to be drawn out of that isolation. You know, one of the things about shame that I often share is it's kind of a double curse. You feel it twice, because you feel, it, it curses you because you feel the shame for whatever action that you've did, done that was shameful. So you feel this sense of shame in you. But that sense of shame isolates you from the one community by sharing and being transparent and vulnerable, the one community that could help draw you out. And so that's the double curse, that you're, by, by being cut off from people, you don't actually receive the healing. You feel it, and then you feel it again, and keep feeling it because you're not able to break out of that, that bondage that you feel, that isolation. We need to be drawn out of that. We need to be a part of a community that provides openness and accountability, a place where we can begin to share our struggles together and see God break the chains that bind us, a place that can remind us of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that God is with us. And I just want to say, like, I'll be honest, this feels like a really awkward sermon for me to be giving. I'm talking about topics up front to all of you that it's very vulnerable to share. But I think it's important because we need to be talking about this. We need to create a culture where we say, we don't, we don't hide this, it's, it's not shameful, and we, we can't talk about it because it's like uncouth or something. I'm trying to create a culture where we can be transparent with one another. When we have these things, we can create safe spaces, even if it feels a little awkward, knowing that we're not going to be rejected in that. But I'd say the best remedy to tackle porn, lust, whatever disordered sexual desire that we have, is not a better internet filter. That may help, but it's to develop good friendships. Friendships that can teach us respect, 
can teach us what good affection can look like across genders. We can't do this alone with all the areas of of life. A faithful community in the Spirit ought to help us become more holy together, a place that we can be opened, a place that we can have accountability, a place that we can receive healing. C.S. Lewis, and it's the third time I've quoted him today, he used to say that love is the great conqueror of lust. I subscribe to um, Sky Jathani's Jatani's devotionals. Uh, it's called With God Daily. And this week he had one that talked about desire. And he said this, he said, the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness is one we face every day. Again, Jesus was about food. He was talking about turning the, uh, the stone into to a loaf of bread. Right? It, it, the temptation wasn't that Jesus would showcase his identity. Um, but it, it was basically that if you're the son of God, why do you have to wait for anything? Just fulfill your desires. You're good enough to be able to take them. And he says this. He says we face this, the, 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 the temptation Jesus faced is one we face every day. He says we live in a culture that tells us that we are defined by our desires. And the purpose of life is to satisfy them. That's the, the, the vat that we are soaking in. We have elevated desires to the status of rights and the thought that a desire should intentionally go unfulfilled is utterly inconceivable to most people today. He says, to deny ourselves a desire is to deny our very identity. I want to encourage us to break from the mold of our culture and to put our desires in the place of servant. Again, that's a Dallas Willard. That they make great servants, but disastrous masters. We don't want to be mastered by them. So as we think about desires, you know, I, I kind of uh, messed up. I didn't realize this till worship, and it was too late at that point. But I forgot to put my reflection questions on the screens today. So I'm just going to read them to you. If you want to try jotting them down, you can. But I will put them on Facebook tomorrow if you want to find them there. So here's some reflection questions as we think about the place of desire in our lives. First question is this. How has your disordered pursuit of sexual pleasure and gratification hurt you? How have you been hurt by lust? How has it hurt those around you? So kind of inventorying. How has it hurt you? How has it hurt those around you? And again, think about some of those indirect ramifications, maybe beyond just the direct. Here's a second set of questions. What is one thing that you ought to remove from your life and one thing you ought to add to better cultivate the virtues of temperance and chastity? What's one thing that maybe you ought to cut off? Maybe it's something you really like. Again, I I don't mean to pick on Game of Thrones, but that's just the example I gave. It's cultural good. Everybody's watching it. What's one thing, though, that is forming you that perhaps you should remove from your life? And what is something else that you ought to add to cultivate those virtues? And lastly, how can we better celebrate human sexuality and healthy physical relationships as beautiful gifts? How can we see people and see their humanness and not just treat them like objects? How can relationships help us with that? So those are some things to think about, talk about with others this week. Let me pray. Lord, may we see 
you as the fulfillment of our ultimate desires. It can be so difficult because I can't smell you or taste you or hear you or see you under most circumstances. And so what we're left with is all of these messages that we're bombarded with that are so much more easily accessible. Lord, that feed those dopamine triggers in our brains. But God, ultimately aren't the path that you've cultivated for us. So we pray that through your spirit, you would give us strength to love you more fully. Lord, to channel our desires into those healthy ways, healthy channels. That we not only love you more fully, but we can love our brothers and sisters, treating them in the full humanness that they deserve. Break us out of this pattern of objectification. And Lord, for those of us that feel shame right now, may we understand, may we take to heart and permeate our very souls what you said in the book of Romans, that now there is no condemnation in those who are found in Jesus. Lord, that Christ has taken our sins, taken our vices, and he's put them to death on the cross. May we allow our old selves to pass away, the shame and guilt with them, and rise up to new life in you, knowing, Lord, that your, your blinding light has permeated everything, has penetrated the deepest, darkest of our souls, and has issued forgiveness. May we be able to let go of those places of shame and come stand in your light. Lord, we pray that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.